Hi, I'm Derek Chalet, this week's host for the GMF podcast, Post-Pandemic Order. Today, we sit down with Jared Cohen, the founder and CEO of Jigsaw, which is a cutting-edge think-do tank that is part of Alphabet. Jared is also a former State Department official, where we work together on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff. He's a first-rate policy entrepreneur, an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and a prolific book author. His most recent book is Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America, which was a New York Times bestseller. And he's starting a fascinating new book project that explores what leaders do when they are out of power and the cheering stops, focusing on the lives of ex-presidents. We talk about these books, his thoughts on how the COVID crisis is changing geopolitics, and the role technology can play, helping address the many challenges accentuated by this pandemic, and much more. Here's Jared Cohen. Well, two things are certainly going to matter. The battle for the perception of what happened um, in these elections may matter more than the reality. And who is sitting on what court in what state is going to matter. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Derek. Jared's an old friend and colleague, many years now. Uh, he's been uh, the CEO of Jigsaw. And Jared, I just want to start out, uh, if you could give your listeners a sense of sort of what you all are working on right now at Jigsaw. And I think it's actually a particularly interesting time, just given all the tumult in the world and all the questions about the future of work and the role of technology in, in our society, just how, how you all are, are thinking about this crisis and how, if in anything, it's changed what you've been doing. Yeah, th- thanks, Derek. Um, you know, it's, it's really an honor to be here, and I, I appreciate getting to hear your podcast voice. It's, it's more official sounding. It's, yeah. Exactly. Um, so at Jigsaw, we, we look at technology, but through a geopolitical lens. And the way that that nets out in terms of the work that we do, we're an independent unit inside of Google. And what we try to do is forecast all of the problems that are going to destabilize the internet on a roughly one to two year time horizon. So at the end of the day, we're an engineering organization. We specialize in forecasting and building. So we we, we forecast future challenges and future threats uh, that bring instability to the world. And then we build and ship experiments so that they're ready in time for the mainstreaming of what we're predicting. So right. what that means is, you know, as it pertains to disinformation, we're interested in what, what that challenge is going to look like a year from now. Yeah. As it pertains to organized harassment, we're interested in where organized harassment is going on the horizon. Um, so the sweet spot for us is when um, we, we typically will look at geographies and demographics that are disproportionately targeted by state and non-state actors first and worse. Right. It's kind of our crystal ball of what is to come. Right. What's the kind of conveyor belt of of information. So if you're looking out in the future a year from now, two years from now on the role of uh, disinformation, you know, obviously there's been a lot of focus on that uh, in the last few years. You know, how does that, how does that get back into, into Google or is it, is it, you're just putting the ideas out there? So, so Jigsaw, Jigsaw looks at the internet as, as a whole. And obviously that includes Google as, as one part of it, but what we're interested in doing is building experiments that we can then graduate into not just Google, but, but, but to, to multiple platforms. So most of the products that, 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 that we build get used more broadly than just Google. We give everything away for free. So for instance, right. we have a product called Perspective, which measures the emotional impact of language on people. So we can look mm-hmm. at language and return scores zero to 100 of how likely it is to be perceived as toxic. 
The logic behind this is we were worried that toxic language would be a new form of political, ethnic, and sectarian agitation, which is certainly has, has been the case. It's also just a problem um, in mainstream in mainstream society. So we build this technology and we make it available for free to our competitors, uh, to Google, to publishers, platforms, gaming services, you name it. Right, right. All right. Well, look, stepping back, I mean, what what's worrying you the most about whether it's disinformation, online harassment, targeting? You know, we've seen that this space has evolved quite a bit uh, in the last few years. Lots of attention on it right now, particularly as we're heading into the election here in the U.S. You know, how are you looking at that problem? And then what, what role do you see technology companies playing in ensuring that our democracy remains robust? Yeah, those are a great set of questions, Derek. And I think that, that I, ha- I have two reactions. One, one is about how we should think about what we're up against tactically. Uh, and then the second is kind of a more macro level observation about the future of democracy in our world in light of, of, of what's happening to the internet, in light of COVID-19, in light of the sort of the, the dynamics between the, the, the US and China, particularly around technology. I always like to ask the question, what's new? What's, what's new about the nature of attacks from state and non-state actors against advanced democracies is it used to be the case that we would have conversations about how terrorists and extremists were using technology. We would have conversations about how the Kremlin was deploying, you know, disinformation, you know, capabilities. We would talk about how China is involved in nefarious, you know, cyber attacks. We would talk about, you know, uh, fraud and criminal activity. Sure. What we're experiencing is the de-siloization um, of these different methods of attack. And what mm-hmm. we're seeing is, um, you know, the, the last chapter of this, you know, in, in the 2016 presidential election in the U.S., what we really saw was the Russian government marrying traditional hacking of systems and infrastructure with capabilities designed to spread disinformation and hack the discourse. Now we're seeing a much more multifaceted effort where the disinformation is matching with you know, the, the creation of synthetic media, which is it's married to the cyber attacks. And then the capabilities are being leveraged by just opportunists, opportunists who are, who are you know, seeing this as an opportunity to enter the fray as well. So you have more countries involved in cross-border disinformation activities than before. You have more non-state actors that are involved in it. And then you also have a change in objectives, right? I think that, that you know, it used to be that disinformation had to be manufactured. What we're seeing is that the growing ecosystem of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. is creating organic sentiments that are ripe for exploitation by a state or non-state actor that wants to exploit them to, to sow discord within a society. But so, okay, so then how do we get at that? I mean, undeniable, we've got conspiracy theories just, you know, over the course of the summer from who's behind the protests, you know, the role of the Antifa movement, you know, the alleged role uh, yet to be really substanti- substantiated much. You know, how do you, you know, particularly when you have a situation where you have some leaders who are putting out what we would otherwise call disinformation, conspiracy theories, how, how do you get at that problem? Yeah, so I think when, when I look at the disinformation problem, I think that there's two problems that need to be addressed and you can't solve the problem or mitigate the risks associated with that with the problem without dealing with both at the same time. So the first is, can you detect falsity, right, right. Um, from, from a technical perspective? And that includes, you know, uh, a distorted image, a manipulated image, 
uh, manufactured video, a video taken out of content. I mean, there's disinformation comes in many forms, but can you can you technically detect it? For purposes of argument, let's say that you can, or let's say that you can in some places and not others. The, the second question is if you can detect falsity, you know, meaning you can score it, you can identify it, you can flag it. Um, there's some algorithmic way to, to to identify it. How do you then convey that information to individual users in a way that changes their behavior? Sure. That's less of a technology question. That's a it's a question of behavioral psychology. That's a sociological question. And you know, we at Jigsaw we've we've been experimenting with a number of different sort of lines of uh, or a number of theories of change in this area, from psychological nudges to you know accuracy primers to you know different types of interstitials. Um, and the, the the field around um, what uh, the, the field around how you do interventions against disinformation is a pretty nascent field. So mm-hmm. you asked the question about what role technology companies can play. I think I would I, the question I would ask is what is the right coalition um, that is required to really get at this problem? You know, so the, the technology companies are absolutely essential. You know, in terms of the the detection, the academic ecosystems are hugely important in terms of understanding human behavior insofar as it gets at that second question around, you know, if you can detect it, um, what are the right types of interventions that can have a meaningful impact on how people digest information? Um, then there's also the, uh, a third category that needs to be part of this, this, this coalition, which are, you know, think of this as the key organizations and individuals who are on the front lines of what we would describe as digital conflict, right? These are the right. civil society organizations. These are the journalists. Um, you know, these are the activists. These are the content moderators. These are the people who are kind of the first line of defense right. against disinformation. How do we aid and equip them with the right knowledge, expertise, and even experimental tools that will allow them to do their jobs better? And then government has a huge role to play in this in the sense that they have tremendous visibility into the context that's driving disinformation. Right. So, so platforms, you know, what they see is tactics. What they see is attacks. What the government understands is the context and the motivations and the actors behind those attacks. And that's really important from disinformation to even traditional cyber attacks, because you can attribute where these things come from, but government is uniquely positioned to understand the relationship between the attacking entity and the state apparatus. Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting, Jared, you know, you and I first started working together 10 years ago, almost, uh, or more than 10 years ago, actually now, uh, 2009. And you were one of the early adherence then of Twitter and, and the power of Twitter to bring about political change, to connect people, to be a, a new way for people to get the word out and, and also the intersection with politics. And of course, at that time, we were both working at the State Department. We were thinking about it mainly as a, as a foreign policy tool. But you know, I'm curious, just just from from where you were thinking of it then to what now what we know and how things have evolved, have you been surprised by anything? Is there, is is some of the concerns that people have about social, certain social media platforms and the way it's it's reshaped discourse is this surprising to you is it something that you you thought you sort of you always saw looming out there as a potential let I me mean, just have a very unique perspective as sort of an early someone who's early on this yeah so i think that the, the thing that has surprised me the most and i think you know, the technology has moved fast as as the world and, and, and it's clashed with the way the world is is kind of struggling to embrace it. And there's good parts of that story and there's problematic parts of that story. And there's aspects of that story that are still very much being being written. You know, I think like anybody, I've been on my own intellectual journey on this, right? You know, my in my my early days looking at technology and the impact on the world, I would I would sort of describe it as over-indexed for euphoria. Mm-hmm. And you had a set of things happen like 
you know, WikiLeaks and, you know, the, the Arab Spring, which produced more chaos than, than it did change, which showed that revolutions were easier to start and harder to finish and, you know, proved that technology is, is useful for organizing large numbers of people to take down something that they all agree they don't like, but it doesn't necessarily sure. put the pieces back, back together. So I think I went through a period, I would say, in the sort of, you know, the, you know, during the sort of height of the Arab Spring, where, you know, a lot of that early euphoria was, was, was tempered. And then, you know, I, I think where, where I ended up is, you know what, you know, I started to just view the world as multidimensional, right? So you have one international system, it has two fronts, it has a physical front, and it has a digital front. And the things that we see playing out online largely reflect the complexity and the challenges of the physical world. There's a reason why, you know, you talk to any foreign policy people and you ask a person and you ask them, you know, what they think about the future of the world, they're going to give you a really grim picture. And it's because right. the nature of the international system is, is, is largely unpleasant. There's a lot of problems. Right. There's a lot of instability. Where, I think the thing, though, that surprised me the most is if you look at the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, the U.S. had a huge first mover advantage on, on technology. And sure. the early thinking as China started to get in this game is that there's no way a state the size of China could possibly embrace technology at scale and still be the sort of surveillance state authoritarian system that, that it was in the, in the physical sense. And I think the thing that has surprised me, what I would have said before COVID-19, that it is clear that China has figured this out. Yep. It's clear that they figured out how to export the capability to like-minded states. And right now, it appears that closed societies are having an easier time dealing with the challenges of being closed than open societies are navigating the complexity of being open in a world where technology is ubiquitous. You know, I think that, that open societies have struggled to figure out what to do with all the noise. They've struggled with, um, you know, how to maintain truth in a, in a world where information is pervasive. In a post-COVID-19 world, I have a slightly more nuanced view, which is I used to view the world through the lens of you have open systems and you have closed systems. And I still sure. very much view it that way. And in many respects, that's how the Chinese engaged with the world, trying to demonstrate the virtues of, 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 of being an authoritarian system, particularly economically. Um, now what I see them doing is, you know, kind of taking that concept of open society struggling with the complexity of being open. Mm -hmm. And I see them trying to paint the democratic world as inefficient, mm -hmm. upholding the virtues of their system as, quote, more efficient. And I'm really worried about this because it starts with, you know, medical preparedness and sort of highlighting, you know, the challenges we face being sort of, you know, ridden with, with disinformation. And then it starts to sort of make its way into all the technology narratives that they're pushing, which very much lend themselves towards efficiency, whether you're talking about 5G the digital side of the Belt and Road Initiative, and so forth. So I'm very worried that they're trying to repaint the world in term, or sort of recast the world or, or shift the paradigm towards a construct of we're efficient, the rest of the world is inefficiency, in inefficient, and what would you prefer? Yeah. A set of resources and capabilities and, and sort of Chinese package that comes with the benefit of efficiency or this sort of chaos of everyone else. So uh, how do we combat that? I mean, Obviously, we just got to show we're efficient. I mean, what's the, you know, if we were sitting in the State Department, how would we try to push back? So I think that the good news is I think that there's a, a really clear path to, to doing that. But it, it starts with the, and it starts with the recognition of the fact that while we had a first mover advantage 
um, on technology. The Chinese have, have gotten way ahead of us on strategy. I think we also have to recognize that there's not a single country in the world that is big enough to go head-to-head with China on a one-to-one ratio. Um, but what is the key difference between an advanced democracy um, and, uh, and China when it comes to technology? The, the, the big difference, it comes down to the values um, and the sure. associated with that technology. And it comes down to the separation between the public sector and the private sector. So the challenge yeah. that advanced democracies have, which I also think can be the opportunity, is that you know, in advanced democracies, you have a significant amount of scientific and technological capability that exists outside of government. And yeah. right now, if we look at how the democratic world is organized in terms of multilateral architectures, we're not set up to leverage that outside of government capacity, and yet we are painfully aware that we have to. So my proposal for this would be, you know, the the you know what we need to figure out is how do we organize the world's techno democracies to harness all of the capabilities that exist outside of our governments and engage in good old fashioned collective action vis-a-vis China. The problem is if you look at the incumbent architectures, you know, there's there, there's no multilateral body or mechanism that has the right collection of countries for this, mm-hmm. right? The right collection of countries for this is has nothing to do with geography, right? It's the U.S., it's Canada, it's South Korea, it's Japan. You know, it's the U.K., it's it's it's, it's Germany, it's Israel. Right. So so rather than sort of focus on you know who's geographically proximate to each other, let's try to organize around a combination of a democratic governance model and advanced technological and scientific capability, and let's experiment with new ways of uh, engaging multilateral based on on that set of attributes. A second thing that I think we need is more flexible and agile multilateral mechanisms that we can stand up quickly and take down quickly and that are more focused, right? So if you look at the COVID-19 era, there's a bunch of, you know, sort of immediate challenges that naturally lend themselves towards democratic collaboration that don't where we don't want to set up a new multilateral body with a secretariat. And, sure. And yeah. yeah, yeah. Funny. So yep. What would these kind of zones of trust look like where for a particular period of time, you could relax the regulatory ecosystem, you could work towards a, a, a common goal um, and, and you can double down on the spirit of multilateralism. Mm-hmm. Okay. L- last question on this. And then I want to move on. Uh, a few years ago, Henry Kissinger wrote a piece in the Atlantic that he talked, he made this point that here, you know, in his in his late 90s, as he was thinking about the challenge uh, or the revolution coming with AI, that it was going to be the biggest game changer of his lifetime. I'm just curious of, of your take on that. I know over the years you've you've engaged with with Kissinger on uh, trying to kind of help, in a way, educate him on the ways that technology is changing geopolitics. But just very interested in in your in your take on that on that how AI is going to, the impact it could have on geopolitics. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say one of my favorite Henry Kissinger moments was being the first person to put a virtual reality headset on him. What was he, what was he coming? What was he, was he like in a forest? What was he walking through in virtual reality? We took him underwater to a deep sea exploration. And I would say one of the things that I've really, really enjoyed is, you know, uh, engaging with someone like Dr. Kissinger, who has the deep breadth and institutional knowledge, as well as the deep historical background, and you know, watching him get exposed to, to sets of technology that he never thought he would see in his lifetime. And what you get with him, it's interesting, when you talk to him about geopolitics and history, you know, he's thought there's nothing he hasn't thought about. But when it comes to technology, you really get his raw, candid... Um, curiosity. Yeah, it's a mixture of curiosity and just kind of you know, really raw 
insights. And so I think, you know, his views are always profound. My issue, though, on the conversation about the future of AI, or even as we how we talk about US and China and technology, we've fallen in the trap of very broad, all-encompassing terms that mean everything and anything. And we've kind of gotten ourselves on a hamster wheel, particularly around AI, where AI is such a broad field with so many different types of subfields. I think what we really need, you know, in, in this conversation are what are the types of technologies? Um, you know, and when I say types of technologies, I mean concretely, I don't mean AI. I mean what subfields of AI? What what is our list of technologies that from a strategic vantage point, we cannot afford to cede to China, and we haven't yet ceded to, to, to China. Let's separate those out from all the other types of technologies where we want you know, healthy economic competition, we want to make sure that, that, that we're active in, um, but we really need to, to hone in on the types of technologies where we haven't yet ceded a strategic advantage and we can't afford to, to, to lose it. And this is hard because this requires an element of forecasting, right? In order yeah. to understand what subfields of AI, we need to be able to forecast what AI is going to look like, you know, 10, 10 years from now. I think that's the exercise that we have to go through. And again, I don't think that it is wise for us to do that alone as the United States. I think one of the challenges that we have is the current technology moment, particularly between the US and China, it doesn't lend itself perfectly towards our sort of usual approach of let's come up with you know a national security strategy made by America for America. We, we, we can't come up. We, what we really need is is a multilateral security strategy among yeah. democracies and, and and working on R and D towards the same technology, pulling together resources to advance the same technology, engaging in strategy around the same technology, and competing with China around the same technology. This includes everything from conversations about ethics to just kind of hardcore engineering work. Okay. I want to shift the conversation from talking about the future to talking about the past. In addition to being CEO of, of Jigsaw and thinking a lot about the way technology is changing our lives and geopolitics, you're also an accomplished historian. And your most recent book, Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America, is a really interesting read now out in paperback about Eight presidents who took power, surprisingly, not 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 fully prepared. And I want you to talk a little bit about the book and just and just why you think the book speaks to this moment. But particularly, uh, you and I, and before the conversation, we're talking about just kind of what we can learn from history about the current moment uh, that the U.S. is facing. And you made the observation that two assassinations and one contested election shape the civil rights of post-Civil War America. And I just want you to flesh out that observation. Yeah, I, I mean, Derek, I love history. I've loved history as long as I can can remember. And at many stages in my life, I was admonished by my peers for, you know, being obsessed with history when and, and being told it had no value in commercial ecosystems. And I will tell you, there's nothing that has served my work in government and my work in business and technology better than a genuine curiosity in history, because technology companies are very good at forecasting where the technology is going. But as we know from everything that's happening in the world, if you can't forecast the context that that technology is going to unfold in, then it's impossible to imagine what it's going to look like um, and the impact it's going to have on the world. And you can't forecast where the world is going without reflecting on history, right? So, so, so yeah. technologists talk about the need for training data to do meaningful machine learning. History is our training data for what the future of the world is, is going to look like. 
I also just have had a, 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 I have a childhood obsession with the presidents who died in office and the men who succeeded them. It's a very strange yeah. obsession. My, my parents bought me a children's book when I was eight years old and quickly found that they had to have eight conversations about death with me. And I still remember <laughs> the page on, on John F. Kennedy, which was 35 is young John F., another president shot to death. And so I spent my whole life reading about these transitions. And when, when my wife was pregnant with our first daughter, we now have three. Um, and she's six. So, so basically almost seven years ago, I decided I was finally going to write a book on my lifelong passion, which was the eight men who became president when their predecessor died. And it's fascinating because of the transitions, but it's also fascinating because of what it, it, it just covers a vast breadth of American history. And it's extraordinary to me as much as the framers of the Constitution thought about enough to, to, to kind of chart the course of the nation, they thought very little about presidential succession. And, and in yeah. fact, when it came to presidential succession, despite the fact that eight presidents died in office, despite the fact that another 19 almost died in office, and despite mm-hmm. the fact that six of the eight vice presidents who became president when their predecessor died themselves almost died in office, um, <laughs> we, we, we never really gave it much attention. So when the first time it happens in 1841, when William Henry Harrison dies after just 30 days in office, it sets a precedent that the vice president becomes president, which is not written in the Constitution. It sets a precedent that is recently as November 22nd, 1963, Lyndon Johnson becomes president of the United States based on a precedent set by John Tyler in April of 1841 that isn't formalized until you have a 25th Amendment in 1967. And so I was just like fascinated by the, 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 the sort of the, 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 the way in which we just kind of winged it, the looseness of the Constitution, um, and the fact that, you know, not only was this not really iterative, you had four presidents assassinated, another four, you know, died of natural causes, and only after it happens the eighth time do we bother to formalize it in the Constitution. That in and of itself is interesting in terms of what it says to us about Fascinating. Yeah. The, the, the originalist view of constant, the Constitution and it being a living document. What I, what I always want to say when I talk about the story of America's accidental presidents is that we winged it. We were pretty reckless about it. We played Russian roulette with the Constitution, but we got through it more or less okay. They were a mixed bag, some better than others. I, I always catch myself. I can't say that because and the reason I can't say that is because of Andrew Johnson. You know, we were supposed to get the vision for reconstruction of Abraham Lincoln. Instead, the bullet of John Wilkes Booth's gun gave us Andrew Johnson, who was a man who he was born a racist, died a racist. He was the last president to own slaves. You know, he inherits the, the presidency with just weeks to go, you know, before the Civil War is, is over. And he gives amnesty to every single traitor, delegates civil rights to the states, which is what ultimately leads to the creation of the Black Codes. And, you know, the Black Codes get formalized in 1876 as the Jim Crow laws. The, the reason I say that the story of civil rights in post-Civil War America is a story of two presidential assassinations and one contested election is because, again, you know, the first assassination deprives us of what Abraham Lincoln would have likely done with Reconstruction. The contested election in 1876 which saw irregularities in voting in Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina, and a disqualified elector in Oregon led to uh, extra constitutional process that included five members of the House, five members of the, the Supreme Court, and five members of the Senate deciding on the allocation of those 20 uh, electoral votes. So Samuel okay. Tilden, the Democrat, won the popular vote. And basically, the, the, the deal that was cut in 1877 gave the Republicans the presidency in exchange for giving the Democrats an end to Reconstruction. And yep. once 
once northern troops were removed from the south, that allowed the, 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 that, that allowed the southern states to begin all of their disenfranchisement laws, which, you know, again, are just one piece of Jim Crow. The reason I say a story of two presidential assassinations is in 1880, the election was supposed to be between James Blaine, the Democrat, and Ulysses S. Grant running for a non-consecutive third term. It was Mm -hmm. the era of machine politics where people cared very little of substance. And everyone was so fed up at the Republican National Convention that someone shouted out the name James Garfield on the 34th ballot. Garfield Mm -hmm. was at the convention as the campaign manager to the governor of Ohio, who was running third in the balloting. Um, And before he knew it, he found himself with the Republican nomination. He runs towards the stage to protest, saying, a man who does not seek the nomination cannot be given the nomination. They give it to him anyway. And Garfield was a man who, as a teenager, hit a runaway slave in his home in Ohio, uh, was one of the poorest men, arguably the poorest man ever to rise to the presidency. He believed in universal education and universal suffrage. And more than any, more, more importantly, he was not tethered to machine politics. Um, mm-hmm. So if there was ever a man who four years after Jim Crow had a shot of slowing down or even reversing the tide of the Jim Crow laws, it was James Garfield. Unfortunately, Charles Coteau put two bullets in him just four months into his tenure in office. And we ended up not seeing what James Garfield could have done as president of the United States. And we end up with a hundred years of segregation. All right. Well, that's a pretty good pitch for the book. Uh, I, I want to, um, no, it's fascinating. Totally fascinating. I, cause we're running out of time. I want to, I want to get you to talk about two things very quickly before we let you go. One is a while ago, back when we, you and I were talking, you made the observation thinking about this upcoming election and transition, which I would argue is going to be as perilous as any we faced since 1876, that the story of this election could be a perfect storm of 1876, 2000, and 2020. And I'd like, for the benefit of our listeners, get your take on that. Yeah, I always, I often get asked for my predictions about the 2020 presidential election. And it's funny, people ask me for different reasons. Some people ask me because of what I know about disinformation. Some people ask me because of my work as a presidential historian. You know, some people ask me because, like you, I, I hang out with lots of Washington people, and, and I'm somebody who's paying attention. But let's start with what we know about November 2020. We know that COVID-19 will still be around. And we know that we can't predict right now where the outbreaks will be and at what scale. Mm -hmm. We know that all 50 states are going to implement some kind of remote and physical voting, and they're not going to do it the same way. So the first conclusion we can come to is polling probably matters less in this election than any other election in recent memory. Two, we know that the entire world is watching and our election is ripe for exploitation by foreign actors, both through through traditional hacking um, and the spread of disinformation. Um, And three, we know that there's a lot of uh, real sentiments in this this country that are going to make a lot of those tactics a lot easier. So What does that look like in terms of a perfect storm, which is actually my prediction for the election? The reason I say the 2020 election is likely to be a combination of 1876 Bush v. Gore and the Iowa caucus outcome. Um, 1876, because that's the last time we saw irregularities in multiple states. You saw irregularities in four states. And the Supreme Court did not have the legitimacy at the time to be the arbiters of that, which is why you had this this extra constitutional process. Yes. The reason I say Bush v. Gore, because that uh, that, that corrected that precedent and replaced it with the Supreme Court. So it set the precedent that when there's electoral irregularities or confusion in states, the court, it'll go to the courts and the courts will decide 
what happens. And the reason I say the Iowa caucus is Bush v. Gore seems quite seamless and and, right. and, and free of headaches. When- Hang, hanging chads are so simple, right? <laughs> exactly. So I think the Iowa caucus is what that looks like in 2020. And the recent you know confusion in Georgia just I sure. think, further reinforces the fact that I think we could see irregularities in not just you know one, not just two, not just three or four. You could see irregularities in you know eight plus states. Um, sure. and it's entirely unpredictable which states. So, so I think that that's something that we have to be really mindful of. Yeah, and particularly when you already have uh, a president um, who is asserting irregularities even without evidence of any, one can expect that there's you know at least it's hard to see how the president's gonna uh, if he in fact loses is going to not claim that it's not rigged or corrupt, given that he's already saying it's it's fraudulent. Well, two things are certainly going to matter. The battle for the perception of what happened um, in these elections may matter more than the reality. And who is sitting on what court in what state is going to matter a lot. Yep. Okay. Last question. You're you're already at work on another book, another fascinating topic. Tell Tell the listeners a little bit about that. So I have a new book that I'm working on. Don't get too excited because I have like three years to write it. But the book is called Life After Power. I'm very interested in this question of when somebody has reached the zenith of their professional success and they still have a lot of life to live ahead of them, how do they find purpose and meaning and substance and ambition? And I figured the best way to explore how to find an exciting new act in retirement is to look at arguably the most difficult retirement, which is the retirement of a president. So I'm trying to answer this question, which I think is relevant to, to everybody, regardless of how much power one has. Of, of you know, And I'm trying to ask the question, which presidents were more successful in terms of their sense of purpose, moral compass, ambition, um, and sense of satisfaction after they left office than when they were in office? And And you know, what's, what's fascinating to me is how few presidents found happiness, success, and ambition after they left. Yeah. A number of them ended up with drinking problems. Most of them, you know, ended up with some, you know, sense of melancholy. So many of them ended up broke. And so I'm really kind of getting at the behavioral psychology associated with the loss of power. Uh, I'm looking at the history in terms of what they did. I mean, John Quincy Adams was better prepared for the presidency than anyone else in history and yet had an utterly mediocre president. His greatest act was after he left. This is a man who began his career appointed by George Washington and died on the floor of the House of Representatives where he served with Abraham Lincoln. He was literally a living connection between the past, the present, and the future. And he did more for free speech and more for the advancement of the abolitionist cause in Congress than he ever did as as president. Sure, sure. No, and people, and Herbert Hoover is another example of a post-presidency that surprises people in terms of its length and also its uh, degree of activity. And Thomas Jefferson, who among the three things he included in his epitaph, one of them was not being president. It was the founding of UVA and Mm -hmm. and the establishment of the modern concept of of the arts and sciences. You have Grover Cleveland, who lost the presidency, and who could argue with becoming president again in a non-term term? William Howard Taft and the the, the Supreme Court. You mentioned Herbert Hoover already. Uh, Jimmy Carter, who found that um, you know human rights was was easier to champion as an ex president than it was as a president, and I really believe that people misunderstand George W. Bush and his painting, which is anything but a hobby. 
Um, I really believe that he is, has discovered his voice and his message and his cause through a paintbrush in a way that is quite extraordinary. Well, Jared, it sounds like a f- it's fascinating. I'm really looking forward to it. Hopefully it's not going to be three years, but, I, but you're a busy guy and there's a lot going on. So, so we'll give you the time. In the meantime, folks can, can uh, check out Accidental Presidents. But Jared, thanks for taking the time to, to be with us today. We'll look forward to having you back at GMF often. Thank you, Derek. I really enjoyed this. And you did help raise me on the policy planning staff. So I'm, I'm glad to be back in this context. Absolutely. All right. Thanks a lot. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Tausenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.